You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. Hello, I'm Jessica Stokes Parish, and welcome to Simulcast. I'm finally trying my hand at hosting an episode and a fun topic we have to sink our teeth into today. We're going to be discussing intubation and COVID with a particular focus on intubation boxes, which is a hot topic on Twitter. And this paper has quickly produced some practical evidence using simulated intubation settings. So before we get into it, I want to introduce who else is on the podcast today. And we have Vic Brazel, co-producer of Simulcast. And I guess for the context of this episode today, Vic is an emergency physician on the Gold Coast. How are you, Vic? I'm very well, thanks, Jess, and very glad that uh, you're in the hot seat for a change. (laughs) Yeah, feeling slightly, uh, you know, in the hot seat, really. Um, (laughs) We've also got uh, Jonathan Beagley. I hope I've pronounced that right. He's an anaesthetist or an intensive care registrar at Cabrini Hospital in Melbourne. How are you, Jonathan? Very well. Pleased to be on the show. Thank you for inviting me. (laughs) Is it Beagley or Beagley? It is. Good question. It is Beagley, but I, I do get a lot of both. And we also have, last but not least, Albert Chan, who is also an ethetist, and he's an associate consultant of the Department of Anesthesia and Intensive Care at Prince of Wales Hospital, Hong Kong. Welcome, Albert. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. So I guess before we get into the meat of the episode, a quick summary. The study looked at the impact on using the COVID intubation box for endotracheal intubation as measured by time to intubation and PPE breaches. So Jonathan, as you're the lead author on the paper, which is titled an aerosol box for intubation in COVID-19 patients, an in-situ simulation crossover study, by the way. Why write the paper? Very good question. Uh, so these boxes hit social media in late March and mainstream media at about the same time. Uh, there was a letter which has been heavily referenced in the New England Journal in the first week of April discussing them. And it seemed from everything that we could see that the uptake and distribution of the boxes was pretty widespread. There was one manufacturer in the United States who was able to list over 200 hospitals that they said were using them. Uh, There was sufficient evidence on social media and in the mainstream media that they were used, being used clinically in multiple countries. Uh, But there was a lack of any evidence regarding their safety or efficacy that we could find. And we thought that given the rapid uptake, it was an area that needed to be studied as a priority. Indeed. I'm just wondering for some of our listeners that who somehow missed the Twitter storm around the intubation box, could you describe it for us? So there's various forms of this box that have been described. Most of them are perspex plastic square or rectangular boxes that are placed over a patient's head throughout the process of intubation. So they're usually a clear plastic. They typically have two holes for an anaesthetist or intubator's arms to go through to perform the procedure. And there's a number of different modifications that some of the boxes have. So some have holes for an assistance arms. Uh, Some have holes to allow the introduction of a bougie or other devices. Some of them have ports 
that allow a suction catheter to be placed onto the box to generate negative pressure. Uh, There's at least 10 or 15 designs that we've seen out there, but they typically share a rectangular clear plastic appearance with at least two holes for the intubator's arms to go through. Right. And Albert, would you say you've seen the same kind of interest in Hong Kong and your working environment? Well, I certainly, I think um, our interest in the box is similar to what Jonathan described. Um, We did see this kind of flurry in social media about using this box. And also people in WhatsApp groups, medical groups are sending around designs of this box and asking us to try it out. So for my personal interest and our group's interest, we're mainly curious about, you know, the utility of this box and how safe it is in our clinical environment, especially in the COVID situation. Very interesting. Vic, was this kind of a thing up on the Gold Coast as well? Did it kind of hit the shores and people thought we should try this? Look, it never really got much of a run, and I think the Twitter storm hit us even before the idea about the intubation box did. Uh, But what I would say is I like the piece in the paper that is setting up the background, uh, and it talks about some of these risks that we see with innovation and change, which I think is one of the sort of themes that runs throughout this paper. And I'm going to quote from it because it's such a great sentence. Additional drivers of this rapid implementation may also include gizmo idolatry, the implicit conviction that a more technological approach is intrinsically better, and MacGyver bias, the inherent attraction of our own personal improvised devices. And I thought that was fantastic. And I was also impressed to see that both of those were indeed referenced. So uh, well done, Jonathan. (laughs) That that sentence belongs to Chris Nixon, I'm afraid. (laughs) I knew it. I knew it. (laughs) Yeah, I I have to say that that particular sentence is also highlighted in in my version. of the paper. Fantastic. So Jonathan, maybe, I mean, you've given us some intro into the hype around it. Um, do you want to give us some background around this, the um, what you actually did in the study and what it involved? Yeah, of course. <clears throat> so this was an in-situ simulation study. Uh, we took 12 specialist anaesthetists or anesthesiologists, as some listeners would know them, Uh, So all with advanced airway skills and experienced intensive care airway nurse. And then we got each of them to perform three intubations, one with no box, one with an early generation of the box and one with a later generation of the box. I I might actually explain that for a sec. So as I said, there's at least 10 or 15 designs of these boxes around, probably more. So we thought that we would test one that most closely resembled the original box designed, but given there were so many around, we tried to get our hands on a very recent version as well that was as heavily modified as we could obtain. So the second box that we studied represented a local designer's most recent construction of the box and had a number of additional features. So they performed three intubations each. The intubations were block randomised. So there's six possible orders that they could perform intubations in, but we ensured that that each of those possible orders had two goes so that no device uh, could end up being the first, second or third for all all of the intubations just by chance. The intubations were designed to comply with the Australian Safe Airway Society guidelines for the intubation of the adult COVID-19 patient. So there were a couple of features of these guidelines uh, that we particularly wanted to test and see whether the 
devices could comply with the requirements in those guidelines. So one of them was a 45 degree, a correction, 40 degree head up positioning for pre-oxygenation. And then we lowered the head somewhat for the actual intubation. We required a full five minutes of pre-oxygenation to be performed. We wanted to test whether people could actually hold that position and then still perform the intubation after that period of time. Uh, And of course, everybody wore uh, full personal protective equipment. The only qualifier to that was that we didn't waste N95 masks for the experiment. So we, uh, for the experiment, so we changed to standard surgical masks, but otherwise we wore full intubating PPE. So the primary outcome, as you mentioned, was time to intubation. We decided to define time to intubation as the time that the pre-oxygenation mask came off until the first successful breath into a trachea below an inflated cuff. So the times that we have there are actually potentially 60 seconds longer than the patient's apneic time. Uh, The secondary outcomes were first pass success, any breaks that occurred in pre-oxygenation, the laryngoscopy grade, and any breaches or damage that occurred to personal protective equipment. So thanks for those very clear methods. So I might just jump in with the results of the primary outcome measures there because they're pretty interesting. So 12 anaesthetists performed 36 intubations as previously described. And of the three groups, the time to intubation with no box was 42 seconds versus 82 seconds for the standard box and then 54 seconds for the latest generation box. But that doesn't quite tell the whole story because there was quite a variation in the uh, distribution of those times for both the standard box and the latest generation box uh, with a positive skew towards some anaesthetists taking a very long time, including in one case 169 seconds, 180 seconds, so much tighter confidence intervals around the no box group. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, Albert, I'm interested to know and your thoughts um, on the study itself. What did you think of the methods, the approaches? I think Jonathan and his group did a fantastic job at being so systematic in highlighting some of the key issues that um, has been identified in the study. Uh, particularly, I'm, I'm really um, surprised and um, astounded by the fact of the breach of PPE that was demonstrated by the box. We had similar findings with our not as systematic way of studying the box with regards to difficulties in maintaining the oxygenation, pre-oxygenation, or intubating times. Um, but I really loved the study design and how systematic it is. Yeah, I, I mean, my thoughts echoed that. It was very clearly outlined, uh, the methods. It all seemed appropriate. Uh, Vic, any additional thoughts from your perspective? Oh, I guess I'd chime in here and just, you know, think about it from a simulation practitioner's point of view because sometimes we're asked to get involved in these sorts of evaluations and I think there are, you know, good ways of doing it and there's probably really good best practice and, and I think this study is right at the good end of that. But a couple of things to point out, 
obviously what simulation has to offer us is the standardization of a challenge. So the very precise uh, angles of the bed, the height of the bed, the various conditions under which the intubations are undertaken can be standardized. And that's why we're not doing this, obviously, in real patients. Uh, I think the way that the randomization worked and accommodating the learning curve that you have on any device uh, is important because you do want to have those practice attempts and having been involved in some similar studies. Uh, it actually does take three or four or five or maybe even six goes before people have sort of got the hang of a mannequin, which has got obviously nothing to do with the box or anything else. It's just to do with the accommodating to some of the things that are different in SIM. Uh, the one thing I wanted to pick out was uh, how you made it a 2A view. And I might be going out on a limb here, but it occurs to me that if you make it the easiest intubation ever, you may fail to see much of a difference in technique. And if you make it the hardest intubation ever, similarly, you may fail to see much of a difference in the influence of technique. And it seemed to me making it that 2A was probably the sweet spot where you might start to tease out differences in uh, challenge and difficulty anatomically or because of the box uh, at that level. Yes, so we did contemplate doing the study with difficult intubations. Uh, we decided against that we could have either had multiple intubations per anaesthetist, but suddenly we're then getting up to six or nine intubations that each anaesthetist had to do. So we elected to keep this intubation easy. A two-way view is still rated as being easy uh, rather than set up a difficult intubation. Most of the simulations that I'd personally seen on social media seem to have the mannequin set with the easiest version, the easiest setting of the airway, uh, and we thought it would be potentially a more useful experiment to keep it easy but just require the little bit more dexterity that you might need to get around a 2A view. Yeah, and I think that makes sense. I actually had a question in regards to, um, Jonathan, the methods you talked about a nurse being involved, and I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit so that person was a senior intensive care nurse we spoke about the option of also bringing in 12 separate participants who were airway nurses we decided to keep the airway assistant the same throughout all of the intubations to remove that as a variable uh, but they were neither a researcher nor a participant so they were performing that role uh, 36 times for the day so um, at our unit, we took a slightly different approach, definitely not as systematic as Jonathan did. Um, we used more of a debriefing and trying to understand what are the barriers, um, kind of what Jessica alluded to earlier, how, how the using the intubation box in such a COVID situation affected, for example, the cognitive load or how the team functions. Um, and that was mainly highlighted through debriefings. And what we found out was, quite interesting. They feel that during the use of the intubation box, there was huge cognitive load that supplemented even the pre-existing cognitive load that they faced when dealing with the COVID situation. And that led to lapses in sometimes communication or how, how they maintain the airway uh, function as a team. So uh, we found that very interesting that was brought up in the debriefing of the of the intubation simulations. Yeah, super interesting. How did that compare with some of your results, Jonathan? Well, one of the other uh, things that we examined is while we had the opportunity to be collecting the data, we did ask for each uh, participant's 
freeform comments as to the intubations, and a number of them also said that the cognitive load of the device was impairing their performance, or at least they implied that. Yeah, really interesting. Do you want to talk about some of the other outcomes? Yeah, so we've spoken about intubation time. Uh, So the first pass, well, so I guess the first thing is because it was a small sample size, we didn't statistically analyse the rest of our outcomes. So we don't have p-values for our secondary outcomes, and that was a deliberate decision. I would say that the first pass success, it was 100% in the intubations that had no box. The rate was still pretty high in the intubations that did have a box at 75% and 83%. The breaches in pre-oxygenation and the grades of laryngoscopy were essentially the same amongst all of the groups. Uh, It was the PPE breaches that I personally found most surprising. So we had a total of eight PPE breaches. Seven of those were the gown being pulled away from the clinician's glove and exposing uh, bare skin on the forearm. One of them, to my surprise, was actually a complete tear through a gown, which I didn't expect to see. Uh, Seven of the breaches occurred with the latest generation box. And I think that the reason for this is that the manufacturer of that second box had recommended that the armholes be covered with occlusive dressings, tegaderm dressings. And it seemed that the adhesive or just the friction from those dressings against the anaesthetist's sleeve was pulling the gown up away from the glove or in one case seemed to cause the gown to tear. Uh, But there was still one breach that occurred in the early generation box that didn't have those tegaderms where the gown just appeared to bunch up behind the armhole and got pulled away from the glove that way. Uh, It did surprise me how much damage and breaching to PPE actually occurred in our experiment. I think um, if I may add in here, I think the breach in PPE is also very surprising and worrying for me because I think some of the social media proponents of the aerosol box that mentioned kind of if you have this box here you might have kind of you know decrease the need for PPE use which obviously is not the case um, because there is no evidence that as Jonathan mentioned that this box actually prevents aerosols per se and now this adds another layer of danger for the box that it, it breaches the PPE that is supposedly there to keep us safe. I think what he means is it probably works all right as long as you just leave your arms inside the box all day. <laughs> so some of the some of the incidents occurred, for example, so they all occurred when the arms were already in the box, uh, but some occurred, for example, when the person reached for the bag valve mask, and that might be only a 10 or 15 centimetre reach down to the patient's shoulder, but that was enough to pull the gown away from the glove. Yeah, yeah. So it has, it has quite a significant um, clinical impact. So what do you think the take-home messages would be um, from this study, from a clinical perspective, and then also from a simulation practitioner perspective? So in our small study, we were not able to demonstrate that these pa- that these devices were equally safe for intubations as not having these devices. So we would not advocate their use without research that does confirm that they are safe for intubation. And I think our feeling is that they would need to have significant redesign uh, to achieve that. 
I agree with your take-homes for clinicians. And I think for anyone involved in change management, it nicely teases out, I think, the difference between how you measure effectiveness and how you might also then measure feasibility and unintended consequences. Because, in fact, all of these things require a slightly different approach. So, for instance, uh, one of the measures of effectiveness might be how well the plastic or perspex stops droplets going from you know one area to another area and obviously in theory that looks quite effective but then once you start and I have seen some studies using the glow germ shows that when you lift the box up and removed it from the patient all those droplets and aerosols maybe then go flying around the room so I think it's one thing to look at the particle transfer as it were I think this study then nicely looks at that next question which is sure you think you've got a nice barrier but how well is that going to work with real human beings and this is the kind of stuff the human factors experts do and simulation is clearly a good way to do this if it is is well designed uh, as I certainly think this study has been uh, and then I guess the other sort of category is and the PPE breaches are another things which was sort of a surprise here it wasn't powered or designed to measure PPE breaches but it looks pretty obvious to a reader that this has got some real problems there and this is I guess what I would call an unintended consequence of something that was designed to have a positive but uh, effect but may in fact have a detrimental one so I think for simulation practitioners my message from this is look here's a great example of how you can be useful to the clinical colleagues and make sure that you stay in contact with them so that you can look at what their clinical issues are and when it comes time for evaluating new technology be there at the coalface ready to test things in the real world. And Albert how do you think we should get these messages out create another Twitter storm or... <laughs> <laughs> well, I I think certainly what Jonathan has done with a uh, very systematic publication does help uh, help with the dissemination of you know what not to do. I think one of the biggest issues is that people take some of these innovations by their face value, and without such robust testing, as was shown in this paper, they just adopted. Um, and that may have implications on staff and, and patient safety at the same time. Um, so I think ultimately it comes down to having done the back work, done the, done the research on these methods before kind of distributing it on social media, which is also important in this day and age when the pandemic is spreading faster than what we can do. Hmm. So maybe a TikTok of the study itself might be the next level. <laughs> I'm not volunteering to do that. I just want that on the record. Spoken like a true Gen Y virgin <laughs> millennial, Jess. <laughs> you won't catch me on TikTok. <laughs> Famous last words, hey? Yeah, but I think that's pretty interesting and I don't think we'd mentioned this up until now, but... Uh, Albert's article on this topic is on life in the fast lane. So if you just go to litfl.com and uh, look up intubation box, you'll see that Albert's got a lovely series of diagrams in there, a nice summary of what the literature was up until that point, uh, last updated May 14 uh, as well. So I think this social media really complements the so-called traditional journal publishing that Jonathan uh, Jonathan's article is in. Yeah, for sure. Is there any other final comments or burning issues that you'd like to discuss before we wrap up? 
that's the episode. So I'd like to know what Jonathan's doing next, actually. Um, yeah, I have been asked that. Uh, next, I'm studying for the intensive care fellowship exam. <laughs> that's my that's my next big project. Can we ask Albert the same question? Is this a research agenda for you then, or um, more a uh, respond to issues as they come up? Well, we are using simulation to look at something else, um, which I don't know if may interest you. Um, we're kind of, because I think in generally, in general terms, people are trying to intubate late versus early um, for COVID patients based on multiple reasons. So we're looking at how stress actually affects performance. I was, I'll, we do have an assumption when patients become, you know, when they're intubated later, they are usually more sick. And they may deteriorate faster in actual clinical situations. And we're trying to see in two groups of um, intensive care specialists, what would, what would be the effects of stress on their performance in terms of contamination or clinical care or time to intubation, et cetera. So that's something we're working on at the moment. All righty. Well, I think uh, if there's nothing else to add, I think just to summarise, that was a really insightful discussion on the design process of this aerosol box for intubation in COVID-19 patients. I thought it really highlighted the usefulness of simulation to do end-user testing and also to explore the feasibility or, or the uh, the appropriateness and safety of a of the um, the intubation box and I thought it was really nice how you know you guys have done this in a really tight turnaround which demonstrates that um, time doesn't have to always be a barrier and I think we move forward by disseminating the the recommendation to not use the intubation box until there is further testing of better options and um, with that I think we'll close thank you Albert thank you Jonathan and thanks Vic for coming along and uh, adding your comments our pleasure well this has been Simulcast and we're signing off another episode you're listening to Simulcast a podcast about healthcare simulation